From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. And on today's show, I go solo to talk about my relationship with exercise. I shared the activities I did as a kid, my deep ambition to be athletic, accepting the fact that walking is really my jam, and how that all tied into how I feel about the sculpt dress. Hey, lovelies. So, I just gotta say, I really love doing these solo episodes. They're always a fun way to sit and chat it really does feel like I'm sitting and chatting with a friend which is always it's always nice to do with you so today I want to talk about exercise Um, I want to talk about I want to talk about exercise I want to talk about how we relate to that in regard to our bodies and this is going to be a lot more about my own personal journey I guess journey feels so dramatic sheesh rifki um but yeah I mean it has been it's been a trip. So um, that's what I want to talk about. It was something that I started thinking about as I was talking about, not talking, but like as I was thinking, it was something that I got thinking about as I was creating the sculptress. Um, and I wanted to share some of that thought process with all of you. I think that, I think that it'll be helpful for some of you, or at least I hope it will be. Um, so yeah, I mean, my first experience, I guess you could say my, well, if if we want to go way back, my first experience with like exercise, but I didn't think of it as exercise at the time was gymnastics. Um, I did gymnastics for four years from when I was in fourth grade through eighth grade. Um, and I loved it. I really, really loved it. Um, I wasn't particularly good. I was really good at the balance beam. I could do some pretty fantastic stuff. I could do a full split. I could do a full split in the air. That was really cool. Um, I was a chubby kid, so it was actually, I'm sure like looked kind of funny. Actually, there was like this chubby kid in a leotard who got on a balance beam and looked good doing. I mean, I think I looked good. I definitely felt like I looked good. Um, but I was also hyper, hyper aware of the fact that everyone around me was much, much smaller than I was. Um, I wasn't in like a particularly fancy gym or anything like that. It was just the local place. And the way that I actually started was pretty funny. My little brother had done little league. Um, and I went to one of his his little league games and I was like, Oh, this looks really fun. I want to play. And there was a girl's little league team, like a softball or whatever team at the time, but the season had already started, so I couldn't sign up. Um, so my mom found this gymnastics and she was like, you can't sign up for the softball, but you could do gymnastics if you want. And I was like, yeah, I'll do gymnastics. Um, so that's how I started doing that. And it wasn't a particularly fancy gym, but they did, there was a team that competed. Um, so like when I first started, when I was in like fourth grade, um, it was, like I was in like a regular group or whatever and I just did the regular stuff and it was like trampolining and cartwheels and whatever and all of that and then when I was in I'm trying to think when this happened might have been around sixth grade like eventually I progressed through their system where the coach who I had was the same coach as the girls who were like going to competitions and things now I wasn't doing any of the competing stuff I had absolutely no desire to compete um 
aside from like the obvious, like modesty issues involved with competing, um, you know, I was little and it was a mostly female gym and you know, whatever. I was comfortable with that. Um, and my parents were comfortable with that, I guess. Um, but competing was not something that I was really interested in. It was also like, I, I knew that like, I wasn't going to the Olympics as a gymnast, like that was not happening. <laughs> um, but there were girls who competed, like who went to competitions on the weekends and stuff like that. Um, and I trained with them because that was like the age and the level that I was at, basically. I had this Russian gymnastic coach, gymnastics coach, and I learned a couple of Russian curse words because every time I would fall, she would curse, which was kind of funny, I always thought. Um, and Russian curse words do come in handy occasionally, you should just know. I don't pull them out super often, but when I need to, it's good to have them. Um, and I remember a couple of things from that time. I remember that, I remember that I could do some pretty cool things that like I could do. We called it a, a TikTok. I don't know if this is what it was actually called. I'm nearly positive it wasn't. But it was basically you would start standing, obviously. You start standing, then you go into a handstand. So like you're, you're in a handstand. You know what a handstand looks like. Your feet are, on the, are in the air, basically. And then you would go from that straight into a backbend. So if you think about like what a person is, it's like you are starting standing, then you bend to get into the handstand, and then your feet go over your head down onto the floor so that you're in a backbend. And then from that backbend, you do, oh man, what was it called? When you kick over your head, there was a name for it. I forgot what it was called. Um, but then you take your legs and from the handstand, you kick your legs over your head um, and then you end up standing again. That was probably the coolest trick that I could do. I could never figure out how to do the back handspring. I think I was honestly just too scared of smashing my neck in. Um, but I could do that. I could do some, and I could do that, by the way. I could do that, um, the the tic-tac. I could do it on a balance beam, which was pretty awesome. And I could also do some pretty cool dismounts from a balance beam. So I could do some pretty cool like twists and tricks to get off of a balance beam. Um, so I remember like, oh, this is cool. Like I can do really cool things. And the other thing that I remember is that one of the girls who was on the team, she was this really, really small Asian girl. She was tiny. And I, and I only realized afterwards that she was actually much older than I was. Like she was 16. Um, and I was maybe like, no, 13 maybe. Um, but she was so, so tiny that I just assumed that she was younger than I was because I could literally squish this girl. And she developed scoliosis in her back because, um, you know, in gymnastics, you start like you always start with your right side, basically. And because she had been training so hard, she like her her spine curved to the right because she had been training so hard and you naturally and like and you favor one side in gymnastics. So she had to do all of these like other stretches and there was like intense rehab involved to straighten out her spine. And then I remember so clearly is that like the conversation that her parents were having with the coaches were around like how could she rehab so that she could continue competing and I was like and I remember even talking to my mom and I was like if my spine curved would you still want me to be doing gymnastics and my mom was like what are you talking about and like no of course not that's ridiculous um but obviously it was still important to them or maybe it was important to her. I don't know. I wasn't particularly close with her. But those are the things that like stick in my head, I guess you could say, from like early exercise. And then I stopped that when I was in eighth grade. Um, I stopped gymnastics when I was in eighth grade. There were 
two main reasons. I had kind of aged out. Um, it was kind of at the point where it's like, yeah, you could keep coming, but like everyone else here is much younger than you are. Um, I was also like at that point I was 14. Um, it was not a women only situation. So like I myself was becoming a little bit less comfortable with, you know, being in gymnastics appropriate attire around, you know, around men basically, cause there were male coaches in that gym. Um, and like, I kind of got bored of it. And also I went to a high school that was outside of my neighborhood. So by the time I hit ninth grade, my, like just the available time that I had was, there just wasn't that much of it because I was traveling. So that also was a part of it where it was just like, you know, I don't think that I'm going to have time for this anymore and, and all that. So I stopped when I was in eighth grade. Um, and that was, you know, that was kind of whatever, that was pretty much it with gymnastics. And, um, I never really revisited it. I don't really have a desire to revisit it or anything like that, but it was a fun time in my life. And it kind of dovetailed with the time in my life when I was pretty intensely dieting and really restricting what I eated and I eated eight. <laughs> um, and the truth is that I never really valued exercise. I never really thought of gymnastics as, as exercise. It was just kind of like this fun thing that I did. Um, and I, and I never valued exercise even when I was pretty intensely trying to be smaller. Um, I remember reading once actually, I don't remember where it was. It must've been in some diet book or another or some blog or whatever, um, where they like, they like gave this story of you go for a super great like run or something and you feel fantastic about yourself. And afterwards you're like, wow, this is amazing. I totally deserve to have a a big fancy iced coffee. So you get the giant iced coffee with the whipped cream and the caramel and all of that. And you feel fantastic. And they say, well, that's dumb because during that like intense hour of exercise, you maybe burnt 300 calories. And in that coffee, there's, you know, 400 calories. So you're at a deficit. And, you know, if you start thinking about, you know, if you, if you keep thinking that way, then you will, you know, you'll eventually, you'll like slowly gain weight over time. So yeah, exercise is great, but you need to, but like the real work is in what you're eating. And it made sense. I mean, I guess it makes sense if you, you know, if your goal is to be small, if your goal is to lose weight, then yeah, um, exercise is not the efficient way to do that. Um, cause like another thing I remember reading at the same time was like, it takes the same amount of time to eat, you know, a thousand calories as it takes to eat, you know, 300 calories. So, but it takes much more time to burn off a thousand calories than it does to burn off 300 calories. So, you know, so like if you want to put yourself in a good position, you need to just limit what you ate. So I never really, I never, like even in the context of trying to be small, I just never thought of exercise as something that was important or that's something that should be done because it wasn't going to get me where I wanted to be. And that was smaller, right? Like the efficient thing to do was to limit what you ate or police what you ate so that you could ultimately be smaller because obviously that was the goal, right? Um, you know, eventually through a combination of frustration and realization, I developed a better relationship with food. Um, and, and through all of that, it kind of happened like without exercise. I will say this, I was pretty I don't want to say that I was athletic, but I played a mean game of Machanayim. Really good at Machanayim. I mean, I haven't played in probably a decade now at this point, but wow, was I good at that game. And oh, I would love to play again, actually, come to think of it. If anyone knows a pickup Machanayim game, I'm there. Um, I wonder if I'm still any good. But the, like, I was really good at, at that kind of thing. And I, and I liked, you know, I always liked hiking and camp and stuff like that, but I never thought of myself as someone who exercised. I certainly did not pursue formal exercise. 
And at some point over high school, I became fascinating with running. Like running was like, I wanted to be a runner. They just seemed like, they just seemed like people who had their life together. You know what I mean? Like people who get up early to go for a run. It was just like, I don't know. There was something about that lifestyle that I wanted, I guess. I don't know. I just wanted to be a runner and I became fascinated with it. I like downloaded tracking apps and things that would tell you how fast you were going and how many miles you were doing and things like that. I would get up at 6 a.m. to do like a walk run in the morning and I would like run for a block and then walk for a block and then run for a block and then walk for a block and and all that. And for a while, I convinced myself that I actually liked it um, because then I could tell people that I was a runner. You know, I was someone who was, I run like this is something that I am. I was, uh, you know, this makes me think of, um, when I had Tracy McCubbin on the show and she was talking about clutter and how there's, um, I forget what her exact term was, but there's like, there's clutter that we keep on for the lives we wish we lead. I have so many running clothes. <laughs> there's a graveyard of running skirts, the leggings, the compression tops. I mean, the, the wristbands. Oh my God. All of the running clothes. I even went to get myself like fitted for sneakers, not like fancy sneakers. They were like new balances or whatever, but like I went to the store so that they could tell me which running sneakers I should get or something. Like I got very into it for a very short amount of time. Not, it wasn't even that short. I would say it was probably like a year or so because, because I wanted to be a runner. And then eventually I did a half marathon. A friend of mine talked me into it. Um, she's a legitimate runner. <laughs> she, you know, she's someone who actually enjoys it, gets, you know, a lot of energy from it and all of that. Um, and I didn't enjoy prepping for the half marathon. I didn't enjoy, I didn't do a particularly good job of prepping for it, which is probably why the half marathon itself was an unmitigated disaster. But I, it was the kind of thing where I was like, well, you know, a friend of mine talked me into it and I was like, well, I am a runner. So runners do, runners do things. Runners go to races and this is something that I am. And in a lot of ways, that half marathon was a blessing because it made me realize how much I really hated it. Like I really hated running. I really hated it. And I... And, and yeah, and like, and I'd been trying to be it for so long. I did that marathon shortly after I got married. So figure it was, you know, somewhere in the range of, I don't know, like five years ago. Um, and like five years ago and like maybe like five years after I decided that like I wanted to be a runner. Um, and while I was trying to be a runner. And after that marathon, I really just stopped because I was so miserable during that like race and during the lead up to it. And then I kind of realized that, well, first of all, I don't want to be miserable anymore. And I just was like, I don't think I want, like, yes, there is something about running, about being a runner that is very appealing, but I don't think I want to run. I just don't think that this is something that is in the cards for me. And then I like, I always ended up falling back into walking. Um, I think that also the fact that this was around the time in my life when I had first gotten married definitely played a big part um, into this. So I had one semester left of college when I got married and I moved, I stayed in the same neighborhood, but obviously moved out of my parents' house. And, um, it was like a bit of a longer walk to get to college. It was like a 20 minute walk. Um, and we only had one car. My husband took that to work. So I would walk or like, I would try to like see if one of my parents were around to give me a ride or sometimes I would take the bus, but for the most part I would walk. And I really enjoyed those walks. Like it was, 
it was more like I never thought about it as exercise, but it was, you know, just a means to get from point A to point B. But like sometimes I would take the long way around or, you know, days when I was working because um, I was working part time at that point because I was finishing up college and days when I was working, I was walking, you know, from my house to my parents' house where my studio is. And I had never really done that before because I lived in my parents' house up until that point. Um, and the truth is that like very gently through those kind of like natural changes that happened to my life, I discovered that I really loved walking. I really, really loved it. And it also, it totally felt like cheating. Like it, like walking didn't feel like something that you did. Like you went running. You didn't like walking just got you from point A to point B and walking, like treating walking as its own thing really felt like cheating because like, you know, you should, because you should be going faster. You should be sweating more. You should be, it should be more intense. And and, and it, it really felt like cheating. It really did. And like for a long time, I was like, oh, I don't want, I don't work out. I don't work out. Exercise is not for me. This is just not something that I do. And, and whatever. And I don't work out. Meanwhile, I was walking like sometimes over an hour a day um, because I liked it. Like I would just do it, but it was like, I treated it more as like my relaxing time than an exercise. Um, and then at some point I came across this phrase joyful movement, which is tied into intuitive eating and all of that. And it means exactly, it, it, it is exactly what it, what it sounds like. It's, you know, finding the way to move your body that feels joyful to you. And I realized that walking was my joyful movement. Walking was the, walking was the thing that I constantly went back to. Walking was the thing that I consistently loved doing. Um, Walking was the thing that I consistently did, which by the way, was a key, is a key point there. Um, and it was always, and I always, I finished a walk feeling energized. I didn't finish a walk feeling drained, like I would finish a run. Um, and, and discovering that joyful movement was really eye-opening because I had always thought of exercise as something that had to be miserable, as something that had to be punishing as something that had to be, you had to end sweating. You know, if you weren't sweating, it didn't count. Um, which also, by the way, was a reason why I always hated doing it because I really hate sweating. Like just the act of being sweaty is not for me. It really grosses me out. Um, so that also like was a reason why I kind of stayed away from those things. And yeah, I, and I guess that's where I'm holding now. Now I walk all the time. I walk as much as I possibly can. Um, you know, one of the, I'll walk, I'll, I'll go for hour long walks. Like I'll walk to places that are far, um, to, you know, just to walk, just to walk. I'll put on a great podcast and just let the, and just let the trip take me. It was one of the first, it's also the great thing about walking is that it's inherently gentle or it can be as stressful as, you know, not gentle, not stressful, but like as strenuous as you want it to be. So, uh, postpartum actually walking was great once I was able to actually, obviously, you know, once not, you know, I didn't walk home from the hospital. Um, but having that, you know, just loading up a stroller and going for a walk, that was great for me. Um, and it's still something that I love to do. And that uh, just, it just felt right. It just felt right. And the more I learned to accept that walking was what I do for exercise, the easier it came to do it, if that makes sense. And the more I did it also, because I wanted to feel 
Like I wanted to make it legit. Do you know what I mean? Yes, it's just a walk. And yeah, I'm not always even wearing sneakers. And yeah, I'm and I'm not even in special workout clothes when I do it because it's a walk for God's sake. You don't need to be in a sports bra. You just walk. And and that, but that doesn't make it any less real. And you know, intentionally saying I am going for a walk now and putting your phone on do not disturb and just going, that is that is really huge. Um the fact that I also found a really great trail in my neighborhood was also definitely a huge part of this. If you're in Kew Garden Hills, this is a great hidden gem. It's called the Pat Dolan Trail. Um, this will only make sense to Kew Garden Hills people, so I apologize if you live in any other place, but just uh, indulge me for a moment. Um, it's called the Pat Dolan Trail. You can Google it. The Park by Park Drive East, not the Shabbos Park, the big park. Um, the one that's got the basketball courts and the tennis walls in it. Um, in the middle of that park, there is a bridge that goes over the highway. I'm pretty sure it's the Van Wyck. It might be the Grand Central. Um, but there's this bridge that goes over the highway. On the other side of that bridge is a wonderful trail. It's um, the it's a wonderful trail. It branches out in a couple different ways. It doesn't make a loop. So that's important. You walk from the bridge or you run, I suppose you could, but I don't recommend running there actually because the ground is not even and it's also in swampland. So there are parts of it that you have to like, um, that there are pallets of wood that like you have to, um, you know, walk on, but it's not, it's not difficult to do. It's like a great place to take kids. Actually, it would feel like a secret hideaway. Um, and then you, when you finish the trail, you will be at the Grand Central Service Road in Forest Hills, um, like up towards, um, like up towards Queens Boulevard. So what I do is that I will start at the Park Drive East Park, and then I will go to the, um, I'll do the whole trail until the Grand Central, and then I'll just turn around and I'll take the trail back. Um, what you can also do is that you can take Jewel Avenue straight back if you wanted to not be on trail anymore. Um, and it's a fantastic, fantastic place. And that also was like something that I was like, oh, wait, if I'm running, I can't do this because this is not a place where it's safe to run. There's like the footing is too uneven. You'd hurt yourself. But if I'm walking, I can enjoy this great like little pocket of nature in my own neighborhood. And I go there pretty frequently and it's a great, great spot. And and it, and that was part of like accepting accepting movement, I guess. And I was thinking a lot about all this, about like accepting movement and integrating exercise into our lives and all of that. Um, and then as I was contemplating all of this, I actually, I asked on my Instagram stories, what your relationship with exercise is. I was just curious if, you know, other people had similar experiences to me. Um, most of the answers either fell into like, love it or hate it or hate it, but I make myself do it anyways. And then I'm glad I did it after, um, or I have no time. So I don't think about this, or I wish I had time because I love it so much, things like that. Um, and then there was a couple that caught my eye, and one was, I prefer sports. Do we have to be miserable to call it exercise? Like, sports is movement. Like, I'm I'm petitioning that we transition away from exercise and think about movement instead. And if there's intentional movement there, you know, if you're going to meet friends to play a game, um, you know, to play some kind of, I don't know, baseball or whatever, then that's movement. Yeah, I guess, I guess it's, I guess you could call it, is it exercise in the traditional sense of the word, maybe, and that like you're not going to a class or whatever, but it's it's still movement and it's still valuable and it's still good for you also. Um, like, do we have to be gym rats to get moving? I hope not because I'm not a gym rat. So, and I do like to get moving. So I guess the answer to that is no. And then one other thing that came up a couple of times was something along the lines of, I'm too self-conscious to go to a class. 
And this makes me so sad because let's face it, when we see a larger person in the gym, we stare and judge and we kind of wonder what she's doing there. Maybe not consciously. Um, I definitely know for me, this is there a little bit. It's something that I'm working on where, you know, you see a bigger person and think it must be so hard for them to move around. That's not true. It's, it's BS. It really is. It's, you know, you see like dancers that are, you know, plus size and they are graceful and, and can move and, and all of that. And I think that if we work as a people to become more welcoming of the natural diversity that exists, not only in our body shapes, but also in their sizes, then everyone would feel a little bit more comfortable doing what they need to do to take care of themselves. And this is also, you know, ways that this is how fat phobia kills. Like this is how this causes real problems because, you know, women who are in larger bodies tend to get medical treatment less because they don't want to go to the doctor and be made fun of. And they don't go, they don't work out as much because they don't want to go to the gym and be made fun of. And if we were more accepting of the natural diversity that exists, then all of us would fare better. And, you know, more and more I've realized that diet culture stole movement from me. I got stuck in this line of thinking that I'm either sitting on my butt on the couch watching TV or pushing it really hard in the gym. There's no space in the in-between. Like the in-betweeners are just not trying hard enough, right? And that makes me a little sad. It makes me sad for the time that I lost to that. It makes me sad for the energy that I lost to that. And it's... I'm glad that I'm, for the most part, on the other side of that. Um, and I wish that it had never happened. I really, I really, really did. And then tied in with all of this, there's this idea that we can mold our bodies to be exactly what we want them to be. You know, that you can target fat in specific areas and melt away just what we want. I mean, I cannot tell you how many stretches and lunges I did trying to get my thighs farther apart until I learned that how far apart your thighs are have a lot more to do with your actual skeleton bone structure than how big you are. I do not come from the tribe of people who have thighs apart. That is that is not the village that I that I hail from. And either way, it's I mean, obviously there's a billion dollar industry built on, you know, the idea that you can target specific areas and mold our bodies and all of that. But you know, above all, there has always been this idea that if something doesn't fit, the answer is to make yourself smaller rather than to just get the right freaking size. And we have been taught and conditioned that we need to mold ourselves into our clothes instead of having our clothes fit us. And I honestly think there's a huge part of the reason why so many people are hesitant to do alterations. Um, you know, we think in the back of our mind that we'll just lose five pounds and it'll all be fine. Um, when we're in reality, aside from the fact that that's a recipe for self-loathing, um, it's most likely not going to work. And the dress you're trying to squeeze into probably won't ever fit you anyways, because it's just not right for you. You should really be focusing a lot more on your shape than on your size. And the truth is that alterations are so important. Okay. Clothes right? Like clothes off the rack, unless you're getting something custom made for you, clothes off the rack have to work in averages, essentially. They have to work in, um, they have to work in the in-betweens because, you know, you're trying to fit as many people as you can. You're trying to make something that looks good on as many people as you can. So you kind of work with the average. Now, here's the thing. The average between, if you have a data group that is one and three, the average of those numbers is two which is 
neither of those numbers, right? So when you're working with the average, if you take everybody's body and you get this average, what you end up with is something that is nobody, which in some ways is good because you end up with something that has a little bit of everyone in it, but in other ways is bad because it's not anybody 100%. And it's impossible to make something that works on everyone right out of the box. That's, you know, that's just not something that can be done, but it is possible to make it work for you. It is possible to take something that is close to what you need and change it. And that's why alterations are so important. And that's why it's important to know what the alterations are, you know, what alterations are are doable and which are not and when it's worth it and when it's not. I actually have a whole packet on this. Um, it's called The Secrets Your Tailor Won't Tell You. Um, it's really useful information on what are the kinds of alterations that can and can't be done. Um, I'm going to put the link to it in the show notes so that you can get it there. Um, it's just a good, it's a good resource for what you can and can't do. And the thing is that like the hesitancy, I think, to do alterations comes from this idea of if I were smaller, it would fit me better. Or like if my abs were more toned, it would fit me better. When in truth, it probably wouldn't, even if those things were true. And instead, you can just get it altered. And it will fit you great and save yourself a lot of heartache. So that's my thought on alterations. I think that like the number one thing you can do for yourself um, in terms of getting a better closet is have a relationship with a great tailor or seamstress. Um, That is the number one transformative thing. And I and I highly recommend becoming good friends with one. It will it will change everything. Now, I wasn't thinking about any of this when I set out to make the sculpt dress. Um, I just really wanted to make a really great shift dress. I've always loved the shift dress shape. I think that it's really just like effortless and easy and just, and just fun without being like crazy. It's like still professional. Um, and I wanted to make a really great shift dress that just had a bit more, you know, I wanted something that was breezy and airy and light for summer that was nice enough to wear on Shabbos, but chill enough to pull out for a date night and like also to work and to just have that kind of, feel for it. Um, and I started working on the shape, which honestly came together pretty quickly because a shift dress is not that complicated of a shape. Um, and it was just, you know, basically taking my slopers and that are already a, a really good, fantastic fit on most bodies and giving them a shift dress shape, you know, making a shift dress from that. Um, and then I started sculpting the bow and it was that process of literally sculpting, like literally molding the fabric. Um, through that process that got me thinking about how we try to sculpt our bodies to close instead of the other way around. And that's how this dress became that, you know, an ode to the fact that we do not need to change our bodies to fit our clothes. Our clothes should fit us. So uh, the sculpt dress features a beautiful bow. It is actually adjustable for larger bust lines. So the bow itself is tacked down only in one place. So you can adjust how tight it is. And if you need a little bit more room up there, you just let it out and it still looks fantastic. Um, It's made of a 100% yarn dyed cotton. So it's breezy and lightweight with a really beautiful texture. The shape is, like I said, this perfect shift dress shape. It's like breezy, easy to wear. Easy is just like the word that constantly pops up in my mind when I think about this dress. It's totally machine washable. Like it's just, it's just easy. It really is just, it just is. It's just easy. Um, I have to say this, I wore mine over Shavuos. It got pooped on like literally, and it was totally fine. So there's that as a plug. If that, if you are in the stage of your life where you get pooped on, 
you're good. <laughs> you know, I have no patience or time in my life for anything complicated anymore. And this dress certainly fits the bill there. Like this is, this is just simple. Uh, it comes in two colors, the blush and the royal personal preference towards the blush a little bit. I just feel like it's light and summery, but the Royal has been a tad more popular. Um, it's available in sizes extra small through 2X, uh, which is equivalent to my sizes 2 through 24. The pre-order for this style, for the sculpt dress, was my most successful ever, which is just, I mean, beyond thrilling. I really have no words. Side note, I know I keep saying that, that like, things have been my most successful and I'm super thrilled and like I can't even really process. Um, it keeps happening and it really keeps happening. And I am just a girl who likes to sit and make pretty things. And I don't think that I will ever not be blown away by lovelies like you actually being interested in wearing them. Like I still can't wrap my head around the fact that this is my job and this is what I get to do. And it's, and it's all because of you and I really can't help but but be thankful for that. And, and, and it comes out this way. And like, I understand that this probably sounds like really cliche and dumb, but here we are. So, so there, um, because of the success of the pre-order, I am expecting a large number of returns. Um, obviously, you know, everything on the site is with free shipping and free returns within 30 days. Yes, you heard me right. So, um, it happens pretty often that people will pre-order more than one size and send back what doesn't work for them, which I love when that happens because that always means there's a little fashion show happening and I love little fashion shows. Um, so yeah, I am expecting quite a bit to come back. So if the size and color you want is sold out, sign up for the wait list. Um, I cannot believe how quickly inventory has been going when it comes in stock and you want to be on that wait list and you want to sign up more sooner than later. The way that the wait list works... I hate situations that are stressful. I don't do stressful shopping. Like, I really, really don't. So what I did was, was that instead of creating a situation where, like, one thing will come back in stock and 100 people will get an email that says one thing is back in stock and then one person gets it, um, I created a, a, a system where, a, like, the first person on the list gets an email. And if after a certain amount of time, which I honestly don't remember what I said that amount of time is at, but if after a certain amount of time that you know, that item is still in stock, um, then the second person gets the email that the item is back in stock. So this way, you know, lots of people are not getting a notification for one item. Um, and if you get that email, then you have a decent chance of actually getting what you want if you get to it within the time frame that you have. So, so yeah, if you are interested in a size or color that's sold out, you are going to want to sign up for the waitlist and you want to, you are going to want to do that more sooner than later so that you are as far up on the list as possible. So yeah, that's the sculpt dress. You can get it at impactfashionnyc.com. I have put the links in the show notes as well. Um, whether or not you decide to try it, I hope it inspires you to make your clothes fit you instead of the other way around. So thanks for listening. You can see the sculpt dress and all of my designs on impactfashionnyc.com. Those links are in the show notes. On last week's episode, my guest was Rebecca Sigala, a boudoir photographer. We discuss all things body image and sexuality. It is a good one. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the card.
cover art. There are currently 17 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fatman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.